6,000 of the Queen's men formed up to face Lord Hightower in the field under the command of Sir Garibald Grey. They fought bravely for a time, but a withering rain of arrows from Lord Ormond's archers thinned their ranks, and a thunderous charge by his heavy horse broke them, sending the survivors running back toward the town walls. There, Red Rob Rivers and his bowmen stood, covering the retreat with their own longbows. When most of the survivors were safe inside their gates, Roddy the Ruin and his winter wolves sallied forth from a postern gate, screaming their terrifying northern war cries as they swept around the left flank of the attackers. In the chaos that ensued, the Northmen fought their way through ten times their own number to where Lord Ormond Hightower sat his warhorse beneath King Aegon's golden dragon and the banners of Old Town and the Hightower. As the singers tell it, Lord Roderick was bloody from head to heel as he came on, with splintered shield and cracked helm, yet so drunk with battle that he did not even seem to feel his wounds. We ended our last episode with Cersei's famous you win or you die line spoken to Ned Stark. But here in The Dance of the Dragons, the Winter's Wolves show us a different attitude. To them, it's more a case of you win and you die, or you win when you die, as long as it's in battle with dead foes about, that is. Roddy the Ruin is Lord of Barrowton, but he shares the sentiment, as all Northerners do, of their liege lord. Winter is coming. From them, there is an acceptance of the inevitability of death, paired with the willpower to see it through on one's own terms, in battle with dead foes about, that is. There is indeed no middle ground when facing a foe like the Winter's Wolves. At the beginning of A Game of Thrones, Ned Stark speaks to Bran about the execution of Garrod, the Night's Watch deserter. No man is more dangerous. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. Several characters portrayed in this joint episode, this chapter of the Dance of the Dragons, will challenge the notion laid out by Ned Stark while simultaneously proving him right. For today, we'll see many examples of crimes quite vile, and the perpetrators will indeed not flinch, nor will they be deserters, though many will be something else. The cousin of the deserter is the turncloak. A deserter fights for one side, only to leave. A turncloak fights for one side, only to switch. In this, we must also distinguish the turncloak from the traitor. For all turncloaks are traitors, but not all traitors are turncloaks. After all, both sides, black and green, consider the other side to be just that, traitors. But those who have fought for one side since the outbreak of war cannot be said to have turned their cloak. A turncloak, like a deserter, knows they cannot fall into enemy hands, for their life is forfeit. Worse, the punishments exacted on turncloaks tend to be among the most gruesome we ever see. Death in battle is generally preferable to death by torture. In the time before a battle starts, the turncloak is more dangerous than the deserter, for the turncloak can stab you in the back at a key moment while a deserter simply runs away. A deserter may leave you exposed, but a turncloak leaves you exposed and exploits the new weakness in one swift stroke. When the time comes to actually cross swords during a battle, 
you'd rather face a turncloak than one of the winter's wolves. And not just because beating a turncloak would be more satisfying. Though that surely helps. For the turncloak and the deserter share another motivation, the desire to live. At least some portion of their strength, some measure of their being, is focused on survival. But a winter's wolf cares not for such, actively seeking death. To hear them talk of it, they're already dead. Every portion of their strength and every measure of their being is focused on killing. Note that Ned says, knows his life is forfeit. That is the common thread across these similar but differing scenarios. A twist on that idea is when we remove that first word, knows. We're left with someone whose life is forfeit without knowing it. The proverbial dancer on thin ice. Instead of the determined fatalistic courage of a warrior set on a valiant death, we have those who feature some combination of arrogance and inability to perceive danger to themselves and or simple naivete. Though perhaps divorced from reality, a being who sincerely believes himself unkillable is just as dangerous as one who intentionally seeks death in battle. In either case, it's an emphatic expression that death is of no consequence. In this episode, we'll see a number of people put to that decision, whether in battle or otherwise. We'll see courage to extremes, suicidal last charges to win glory, and noble suicides to win mercy for friends and family, sacrificing oneself to give others a chance, as Ned uses his last effort for Sansa. Those who are about to die are united in that same goal, wanting to sell that last breath as dearly as possible. Hello and welcome to this fourth installment of the Dance of the Dragons series, a joint production of Radio Westeros and History of Westeros. When we left off last time, both Dragonstone and King's Landing had fallen to the other side, but many of those fighting in the war would only learn of it much later, or not at all, for many would die before that news reached them. Damon and Amond were set to face off in the Riverlands, while the Green Army in the south was moving inexorably north. Rhaenyra might have felt she was on the brink of victory, seated on the Iron Throne as she was. But with so many loose ends, perhaps it's no surprise things began to unravel. Or should we say fall apart. That's a theme that will resonate throughout today's episode, which is the longest in the series to date, and is full of war, mayhem, betrayal, and of course, dragons. Though there are fewer of those with each instalment. But before we continue, let's start as always by giving thanks to our patrons. Visit patreon.com slash radioesteros and patreon.com slash history of Westeros to find out how you can support our work too. Flaming Lightbringer patron TJ Harrington, Dragonsteel patron Peter, Pale as Milk Glass patrons Daniel, Joel One, the Three-Eyed Bro, Chris B, the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Pepper, Multude, Scotty, John Wergarian, and B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, and Mr. Red J, the Red Shirt in Black. History of Westeros, First Sword, Jeff Gnarly the Longsnapper, 
and the Dragon Riders, Talanis the Talon, King of Gagossos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, and Hunter of House Black Cloud, the Storm Runner, King of the Sky, Rider of Hurricanicon, the Windworm, a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum silver, horns, claws, and fangs of pure white, and eyes the colors of diamonds of fire. Things Fall Apart Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. We love to start episodes with quotes. And this joint series on the Dance of the Dragons has so far featured real-world history to kick us off. Here the two ideas meet with this portion of the poem The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, a poem written in 1919 in the aftermath of one of the bloodiest wars in European history and at the dawn of Ireland's hard-won independence from Britain, one of the numerous trigger points leading to the disintegration of the once mighty British Empire. The themes of the poem resonate with the chaos that grips a land at war where things are going badly. Let's go through it line by line to start off. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Think of how a breakdown in communication can lead to disaster for an army. What good are orders issued to an army that cannot hear those orders? Or if the orders are too late? Or, more specifically for the dance, when army and dragon are separated? Next is Things Fall Apart. The center cannot hold. Things Fall Apart was used by author Chinua Achebe for the title of his debut novel. He didn't simply borrow the title, he was inspired by the poem itself, perhaps in part because it speaks so well to aspects of human nature that pervade all cultures and times. The novel was groundbreaking in that it gave English speakers a perspective on colonialism from the perspective of a particular African tribe, whereas the overwhelming standard was to depict events through the eyes of the colonials themselves. As we're used to with the Song of Ice and Fire, though sympathetic in a number of ways, neither the protagonist Akonkwo nor his tribe are glorified. It's a highly masculine society and great conflict comes from the demands of honor and other demanding and brutal codes of behavior. There is kin slaying, the deaths of innocence, so-called noble suicide, and plenty of old-fashioned greed, lust, pride, etc. You can already see the similarities with the dance just from that description. It's also, of all the lines, the one that means the most to us today. Things fall apart as bad decisions mount and the toll of battle mounts. The center cannot hold, the line says, and by the end of this episode, the continent will largely be divided by north and south. Yet, on either side of that center, even on their home halves, the falling apart will commence in earnest. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The ceremony of innocence is drowned as so many civilians are caught between or conscripted into armies. Some will quite literally drown in the god's eye or demander. Those captured and not drowned there and elsewhere will be told they are traitors for the sin of joining the side that conscripted them. In other words, they die for not fighting back against the impossible. The youngest of children, they who are the most innocent of all, will not be spared either. The lords of Westeros expect that every commoner behave as do the winter's wolves, to die in battle for the queen, or the king, to be as fierce as a mother in defense of their children, but not for their own children, rather for the queen's, 
or the kinks. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The crux of the issue is expressed here. The leadership present on both sides is self-serving. Virtue is a rarity in these times. If leaders are meant to set a standard of behavior, then that standard is low indeed. The worst people are in charge, making decisions both short-sighted and cruel. That they were never prepared by their ancestors to lead is magnified by the even greater need for quality leadership that comes during war. Even the gloriously loyal Winter's Wolves cannot help in the aftermath. That's for the survivors, not those who die to ensure that there's an aftermath in the first place. Let's not forget that these events are in the past, relative to A Song of Ice and Fire, but not that far in the past. Cersei and others can say, you win or you die, because Rhaenyra and Aegon made sure that truth would be long remembered through their very demonstrative examples. Even the worst, most selfish people, can have value to others in such a manner by teaching us what not to do. All eyes on the god's eye. The Greens plan to trap the forces of the Riverlords and Prince Damon between them while converging on Harrenhal appeared to be proceeding well from their point of view. However, as good as it looked, we just told you that the theme of this episode is things fall apart. Let that be a preview of how things are going to proceed. To start, the army the Greens are trying to trap won't even be there by the time they arrive. Sometimes when two armies converge on the same point with their enemies in between, it's called a pincer, named for the grabby claw thing that crabs have. Let's look at each half of the pincer in turn. When the lions fed the fish. In order to meet up at Harrenhal, the western pincer planned to march along the river road. In a time of peace, it's faster to take the river road almost all the way to just north of Harrenhal, but the road cuts northeast towards Riverrun and territory solidly for Queen Rhaenyra, so their plan was to leave the road near the Golden Tooth, striking straight east and crossing the Red Fork towards the God's Eye. They then turn north and march along the lake shore until reaching Harrenhal itself. In total, the armies led by Lord Jason Lannister had quite a bit farther to travel than Prince Aemond and Sir Criston, so it was already going to be a challenge to arrive near each other. Worse from a timing perspective, they faced foes along the way, quite the opposite of what the Eastern Pincer faced, given that Prince Daemon's strategy was to simply let them pass unopposed and take Harrenhal. The first opposition the Western ones faced was at the crossing of the Red Fork, a place named for the impact of mud in the riverbed. But the color evokes blood, and blood describes our reader perspective associations with this place quite well. The Red Fork is a very long river, and most of our experience with it is much further north, towards those same regions around River Run that we just described, where both sides of the river are controlled by the blacks. The area we're zooming in on now is close to the headwaters of the Red Fork, a region where the river marks the border between the west and the riverlands. In the Game of Thrones, this is about where the mountain that rides emerged to cross the Red Fork on Tywin's orders to pillage and destroy, only to disappear back across the river as quickly as he came. When Lord Beric Dondarrion pursued him, the mountain laid an ambush during the crossing, a vulnerable time for any sized army, and this one was fairly small. Soon it became less of an army and more of a brotherhood without banners. 
Also, in A Game of Thrones, the first battle of the War of Five Kings occurred when Jaime emerged from the Golden Tooth with an army which the Lords Piper and Vance bravely resisted despite being greatly outnumbered. The Pipers and Vances of this era did the same. On the Red Fork, Lord Jason Lannister found himself facing the Lord of Pink Maiden, Old Peter Piper, and the Lord of Wayfarer's Rest, Tristan Vance. Though the Westermen outnumbered their foes, the Riverlords knew the ground. Thrice the Lannisters tried to force the crossing, and thrice they were driven back. In the last attempt, Lord Jason was dealt a mortal wound at the hand of a grizzled squire, Pate of Longleaf. Lord Piper himself knighted the man afterward, dubbing him Longleaf the Lion Slayer. The fourth Lannister attack carried the fords, however. This time it was Lord Vance who fell, slain by Sir Adrian Tarbeck, who had taken command of the western host. Tarbeck and a hundred picked knights stripped off their heavy armour and swam the river upstream of the battle, then circled about to take Lord Vance's lines from the rear. The ranks of the river lords shattered and the westermen came swarming across the Redfall by the thousands. Here we find a reversal of the irony present in A Storm of Swords. In the Battle of the Stone Mill, Edmure successfully defends the fords of the Red Fork near River Run against Tywin's multiple attempts to cross, and Edmure considers it a great victory. Only for that to backfire badly because King Rob wanted Tywin to cross as part of a greater plan to trap him. Likewise, the Westermen, under Tywin's ancestor Jason, will come to regret winning their way across the Red Fork, not to mention Lord Jason himself, as he lay dying from the wound given to him by Longleaf the Lion Slayer. Death saved Lord Jason from another embarrassment, very similar to the one Prince Aemond and Sir Christian Cole will face when they find out that King's Landing was taken in their rear, thanks to them leaving it undefended. Because as Lord Jason marched his armies across the Red Fork, the Red Kraken seized the opportunity to assault the now lightly defended West. The predation of Lord Dalton Greyjoy will be dealt with by us in detail later, but the bottom line was that they became too busy dancing with krakens to dance with dragons. Just like that, two of the great houses were almost entirely out of the picture. Except, of course, for the Western Army now, led by Lord Tarbeck. Surely they'd have been frustrated to learn that their hard-won crossing had to be almost immediately abandoned due to ironborn attacks, and would have rushed to defend their homes despite that. But they were unaware of the raids and continued towards the God's Eye. On their way, they faced more opposition. At Acorn Hall, the Westermen were checked briefly when Lord Joseph Smallwood sallied forth to join Lord Piper and the remnants of his defeated host. But Piper died in the battle that ensued. Felled when his heart burst at the sight of his favourite grandson's head, upon a spear, Mushroom says, and Smallwood fell back inside his castle. A second battle followed three days later when the rivermen regrouped under a hedge knight named Sir Harry Penny. This unlikely hero died soon after while slaying Adrian Tarbeck. 
Once more the Lannisters prevailed, cutting down the rivermen as they fled. With the western host resumed its march to Harrenhal, it was under the aged Lord Humphrey Lefford, who had suffered so many wounds that he commanded from a litter. First Lord Jason dies, then Lord Tarbeck, and here we see Lord Lefford take command. If having a man with one foot in the grave at the head of an army seems ominous to you, well, you're on top of things. Indeed, the men of the West will follow him as he unknowingly puts his other foot in the grave as well. This because after all the hardships they've endured, after all the tough battles, they're going to run into this. At their head rode the Lord of Barrowtown, Roderick Dustin, a warrior so old and hoary, men called him Roddy the Ruin. His host was made up of grizzled greybeards in old mail and ragged skins, every man a seasoned warrior, every man a horse. They called themselves the Winter Wolves. We have come to die for the Dragon Queen, Lord Roderick announced at the Twins, when Lady Savatha Frey rode out to greet them. In other words, men who knowingly, intentionally put both feet in the grave. Roddy the Ruin and Lady Sabbath of Frey combined forces with Blackwood archers led by Red Rob Rivers and moved south to confront the Westermen. Meanwhile, the survivors of the earlier battles against the Westermen reformed and approached from the north. And so it was that the western pincer heading east found itself in turn caught by a pincer from the north and south. Realizing this, Lord Lefford may or may not have had a chance to strike back west in retreat. It's not clear. However, it is clear that what he did choose was disastrous. He dug in with the lake to his back and tried to send ravens to Prince Aemon. Much like how the Blackfish shot down all of Lord Frey's ravens in Game of Thrones, the Blackwood archers shot down all of Lord Lafford's birds. But unlike Lord Frey, Lord Lafford had no castle to hide in, and thus his plan, too, was effectively shot down. As he waited for help to arrive to augment his forces, instead, his enemies grew stronger as more and more river lords brought their contingents to the field. Here's where we must remember how much dragons change how wars are fought. With no dragons about, the queen's forces may have taken a more cautious approach, and Lord Lefford may never have dug in as he did. In a different era, the river lords and northmen may have waited for their numbers to grow even larger, but massing too many men in one place could backfire in these times, as a single large dragon unchecked is capable of annihilating and or dispersing an entire army. Let alone what three dragons can do to an army, as we saw when Beleriand, Meraxes, and Vagar gave the Field of Fire its name. And though that battle was over a century ago, one of those three beasts still lived and was nearby, and they knew it. Best make an end to these lions before the dragons come, said Roddy the Ruin. The bloodiest land battle of the Dance of the Dragons began the next day with the rising of the sun. In the annals of the citadel, it is known as the battle by the lake shore. But to those men who lived to tell of it, it was always the fish feed. Attacked from three sides, the Westermen were driven back foot by foot 
into the waters of the god's eye. Hundreds died there, cut down whilst fighting in the reeds. Hundreds more drowned as they tried to flee. By nightfall, two thousand men were dead, among them many notables, including Lord Frey, Lord Lefford, Lord Bigglestone, Lord Charlton, Lord Swift, Lord Rain, Sir Clarence Craighall, and Sir Emery Hill, the bastard of Lannisport. Each Lord of the West to lead the host died in turn, and now there was no Western host at all. And so the crab's pincer fed the fish. And though the god's eye was well fed by the battle, it would feast again soon. Still wary of Vagar, the river lords didn't advance on Harrenhal, but stayed close by to deny supplies to the castle while waiting to see what the kinslayer and the kingmaker would do next. But let's not pass over the fun George had here, in particular with the river lords, who are a parade of Easter eggs and jokes. Peter Piper is not exactly a subtle reference, but Lord Hugo Vance, who took over after his father Tristan was slain in the Battle at the Red Fork, could be considered such. His name is a reference to author Jack Vance, three-time Hugo Award winner. A slaughter of strongs. Though they faced no armies on the way to Harrenhal, the weather did delay the eastern half of the pincer somewhat. This in turn gave Prince Damon and Queen Rhaenyra even more time to take and establish themselves at King's Landing. Still unaware of this reversal, Sir Criston Cole led the vanguard towards their goal, meeting only minor opposition near the shore of the God's Eye, but found Harrenhal's gates flung wide open. Aemon's arrogance led him to the wrong conclusion as to why that was the case. He reached Harrenhal a day after Cole, and that night celebrated a great victory. Damon and his river scum had fled rather than face his wrath, Amond proclaimed. Small wonder, then, that when word of the fall of King's Landing reached him, the prince felt thrice the fool. His fury was fearsome to behold. Here's where we have to remember that Prince Aemon has a bit of history with how strong. He was always the quickest to mock his nephews over their rumored parentage, even after their grandfather ordered an end to all such talk. Though he had already gotten revenge for the loss of his eye, Prince Aemon wasn't a man to call things even, especially when his temper was ablaze. Eamon cited the ease at which the Castellan Sir Simon Strong handed over the castle to Prince Damon as evidence of collusion with the enemy. Never mind that Sir Simon didn't actually leave the doors open for Prince Damon, but did for Prince Eamon. Never mind that Larry Strong himself is a key green loyalist and architect of the coup and currently responsible for hiding the very badly wounded King Aegon, Eamon's own brother. None of this assuaged Eamon's anger. Sir Simon was forced into a trial by combat. The duel that followed was utterly one-sided. All the accounts agree. The prince cut the old man to pieces, then fed his corpse to Vagar. Nor did Sir Simon's grandsons long outlive him. One by one, every man and boy with strong blood in his veins was dragged forth and put to death, until the heap made of their heads stood three feet tall. 
Thus did the flower of House Strong, an ancient line of noble warriors boasting descent from the first men, come to an ignoble end in the ward at Harrenhal. It's almost fitting, then, that the one person of strong blood he left alive, Alice Rivers, would change the course of the war, thanks in part to Amond seemingly falling head over heels for her. Some insist that she ensorcelled him. How else could one explain him sparing her in light of his viciousness towards the rest of her blood? Accounts differ on her age, but she was apparently over 40 at the time. Thus, we have those who cite how unusual it is for a teenage male to not only choose a much older woman, but to ignore all other women in the process. Against that argument, we can point to the fact that if she could use sorcery to make a man fall for her, Why didn't she use it on Prince Damon when he held the castle? Too often magic is inserted to explain attraction that doesn't conform to expected standards, but the gossip cannot be entirely dismissed here. The evidence that Alice Rivers used magic to charm Eamon is entirely circumstantial, but the evidence that she used magic in general is pretty strong, pun intended. Either way, this is the sort of relationship that guarantees chatter, so let's not forget that Prince Eamon won the support of Storm's End in part by agreeing to marry a daughter of Lord Boros Baratheon. So one wonders what Lord Boros and his daughter thought of these tales. Their reaction isn't recorded, but perhaps we should take note of this. Lord Boros Baratheon called his banners and assembled near 6,000 men at Storm's End with the avowed intent of marching on King's Landing, only to lead them south into the mountains instead. Well, connecting these two events is pure speculation on our part, and should be viewed as such, since it's also possible that Lord Boros simply wanted to avoid a pitched battle with his vengeful cousin Rhaenyra and her dragon— But he could also be a little bit of both. I mean, Boros wouldn't be the first person to find multiple motivating factors for the same decision. Also at the same time, one source in turn speculates that Sir Criston was also interested in Lady Alice Rivers and that he and Prince Aemon may have quarreled over her, although another source refutes this. What's more certain is that Prince Aemon was furious when he learned, in short succession, of all their recent losses. King's Landing, the Iron Throne itself, and the fish feed so close by. It must have been galling to know that he could have prevented the latter, if not all three, had he known in time. Not mentioned are the attacks on the West by Lord Greyjoy, but Aemon didn't exactly need more bad news. As it was, he nearly turned the proverbial into the literal by strangling the messenger, only to be stopped by Alice Rivers before he killed the hapless youth. Though I doubt she pointed it out to him, his and Sir Criston's errors led to their predicament. He had no one to strangle but himself, but he wasn't so graceful as that. The realization that they had made a huge strategic blunder was compounded by how masterfully Prince Damon took advantage of it, though we doubt Aemond was willing to face that either. As a ruthless veteran of many wars, Damon didn't leave Harrenhal in the condition he found it. Though he didn't murder the inhabitants like Prince Aemond, he destroyed the surrounding countryside and villages so as to deny food to the Green Armies. The people in those villages may have suffered more than the Strongs. 
Sir Kristen pointed out that they couldn't remain there, that Prince Damon had left the place untenable as a base of operations. He further pointed out that they had plenty of support in the south, and with Vagar around, they could muster a large army without the aforementioned risk of dragons coming to take them out. Eamon's pride seems to have been in full fury, and as Stannis once told us, anger makes men stupid. Eamon was unwilling to make any sort of retreat, even a strategic one. Neither we nor Sir Criston see it as cowardly to regroup and attack anew. But in the face of things falling apart, Eamon was dead set on getting even via blood and fire without delay. To the prince, even preparation and simple logistics count as cowardice. He actually wanted to attack King's Landing straight away, despite being outnumbered in both men and dragons. Sir Criston was able to talk him out of that rash plan, but he was still intent on immediate reprisal. It was within Aemon's power as regent to issue orders to Sir Criston, but instead they simply separated. Most likely because the course of action Aemon chose didn't require anyone else save his dragon, let alone an army. The plan was thus, that Sir Criston would lead the men south, while the prince would use Vagar to burn the Riverlands, as Aegon and Rhaenys had once used Beleriand and Meraxes to burn Dorne. It's similar to the idea behind the trap at Rook's Rest, but instead of the element of surprise at a specific locale, the prince on Vagar could be anywhere. The problem would be in finding him, and of course there's the matter of actually defeating the huge dragon once you find her. So, Amon's is a brutal plan, to be sure, short-sighted, but not ineffective. If the queen does nothing, she's no queen at all, as the first duty of whoever sits the Iron Throne is to defend the realm, right? Failing to act as a queen would cost her legitimacy and support, not to mention losing the direct support of those who were directly burned by Vagar. But, Vagar is the largest of the dragons, and none can match her one-on-one. -on -one. Rook's rest almost cost Rhaenyra the loyalty of the sea snake. It showed her and us that responding to a draconic threat insufficiently can be worse than not responding at all. To compound the difficulty, if she sends multiple dragons to deal with Vagar, she lessens her ability to defend the capital, which is also vital to maintaining her legitimacy. Thus, she is damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. Even though the recent events we've described have all been a rousing success for the Blacks, even with a significant turnabout, Rainier is still in danger of things falling apart. Let's not forget that Prince Aemon derived great joy from cruelty and must have also realized that he would be having a grand time either way as well. If she doesn't come for him, he gets to fly around blowing up castles and villages and such. If she does, then it's Rook's Rest or Storm's End all over again. He may have lost the capital, but that wasn't a lost fight. It was treachery. In his mind, he hasn't actually lost a battle. And we don't know of him being wounded during the war. He knows he's got the biggest dragon in Westeros. He was already a confident man. His courage of the sort that implies he cannot process danger to himself. A bit mad, in other words. But leaving Cole's army without its draconic air support is risky. And while lords left to burn might curse Rhaenyra's inability to defend them, they won't be eager to join Aemon's side either. On the other hand, mutual destruction is very much in the spirit of this Dance of the Dragons. On the other, other hand, an utterly unscrupulous, cruel, confident foe invoking the old way while willing to sacrifice his own 
denotes a powerful parallel. Earlier, sources, including the dwarf jester Mushroom, told us that black-clad Aemond made a mound of the heads of House Strong. And as he flies off to burn the Riverlands like an aerial Sir Gregor, the mountain instead of a mound, we're also reminded of another most villainous and cruel of characters, one who also possesses a short temper. Clad head to heel and scale as dark as onyx, he sat upon a mound of blackened skulls as dwarfs capered round his feet and a forest burned behind him. Though Aemond may not, may not, be willing to kill his own full brothers like Euron Greyjoy, he's more than willing to kill his half-brothers and any other kin, especially when it comes to taking the throne. Aemon claimed Vagar, and Euron will... Well, that's another subject. For now, it's enough to point out that the life of Prince Aemon, with his single shining blue eye, has great potential as foreshadowing for the life of Euron Greyjoy, who also bears a single shining blue eye. As it is for Euron Greyjoy, the tale of Dalton Greyjoy, the Red Kraken, will be told by us elsewhere. There are enough threads to keep track of at once here during the Dance of the Dragons, and his story stands apart enough for us to discuss it separately. So we shall. To reach the reach. At this point, Rhaenyra controlled most of the northern half of Westeros. She had King's Landing, the Vale in the north were allies, and much of the Riverlands and Crownlands were under her control as well. Her enemies' armies had been decimated by the campaigns in the Riverlands, and two female members of the Green Targaryen branch were in custody. But Aemon was still free in the Riverlands with Vagar. Aegon II was missing, and so were his two children. And there was that pesky Hightower army in the Reach, accompanied by Prince Daron the Daring and Tessarion, the Blue Queen. Things might have looked good for Rhaenyra, but they were far from perfect, and there remained a number of ways left for things to fall apart. The Greens were far from beaten, even those who found themselves in territory controlled by the Blacks. This included two Kingsguard knights in particular who tried to make their way south. One of them led an army, the other led a single prince in secret with an egg. That might make you think of Sir Duncan the Tall, and like him, this knight wishes to keep it secret that he's traveling with the Targaryen. But unlike Dunk, he's not seven feet tall and he has a really good chance of going unnoticed. While this one is incognito and not well-remembered, the other is perhaps the most infamous knight in all of Westeros, his name known to all since over a decade before the war began, and still to this day. The Kingmaker Meets His Maker Sir Criston Cole abandoned Harrenhal, striking south along the western shore of the God's Eye, with 3,600 men behind him. Death, disease and desertion had thinned the ranks that had ridden forth from King's Landing. Though the plan to take Harrenhal was fraught with poor planning, Sir Criston was most certainly correct in thinking that he needed to get his army out of the Riverlands and link up with the greatest portion of the green strength down in the Reach. Prince Aemon's decisions have given Sir Criston little choice. Recall that with Vagar nearby, no one gave their army much trouble at all. Part of that was because Prince Daemon wanted to encourage them to make the mistake of leaving King's Landing. But the dragon was as much a factor, if not more. But with Vagar off burninating the countryside, not defending Sir Criston's force, the Riverlords took the initiative. 
These are lands they've ruled for countless generations, and they know them well. That means taking full advantage of the terrain, knowing where to set traps and how to deny the invaders food and fodder. Note, too, what could potentially be another mistake by the Greens here. The quote tells us he led his army along the western shore of the God's Eye. This is deeper in enemy territory than the eastern side, and worse, it puts them between the River Lords and the river. Perhaps he was trying to stay as far from King's Landing as possible, so as to avoid his army being destroyed by Caraxes, or perhaps he thought a black army would emerge. As well, he probably exhausted the villages of their food supplies on the march towards Harrenhal on the eastern side, not to mention Prince Damon's ravaging of the surrounding area. So it may have been simply that he was making the best of a bad situation, that his options were really quite limited. Good strategist or not, the man's ability to win a battle was not to be despised. Once the greatest knight of the realm, his honor may have been tarnished multiple times over the years, but his skill at arms hadn't declined at all. No one wanted to face this man directly in combat, so they didn't. It began with fires. Trees and villages burned all around Sir Criston's line of march, suggesting that perhaps the blacks were forcing them along a certain route. The river lords left death everywhere, corpses of men and animals and wells and streams, making the water undrinkable. Where did all these bodies come from? Another result of choosing the western side of the god's eye meant passing by where the fish feed had occurred. There was probably no shortage of corpses, even if many were mostly skeletons by this point. And of course, there was a steady supply of new dead. Four days out of Harren Hall, the attacks began. Archers hid amongst the trees, picking off outriders and stragglers with their longbows. Men died, men fell behind the rearguard and were never seen again. Men fled, abandoning their shields and spears to fade into the woods. Men went over to the enemy. Ambushes and night attacks and denial of supplies are standard and recurring features of war. Grizzly displays to reduce morale are nothing new either, but the River Lords deserve a laurel for morbid originality this time. In a display that would make the best haunted house designers green with envy, the River Lords pulled off a ghastly plan to further demoralize the Green Army. They took more corpses and sat them around tables, as if at a feast, as if everyone had died during said feast and no one ever cleaned it up. They say that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Here, I suppose it's more a case of if life, well, if death gives you corpses, set the table. The notion of a forest full of lurking hidden watchers and ambushes by bowshot casts our mind back to ancient times when the land still belonged to the children of the forest and the notion of dead men at their command, well, that gives us other ideas, too. Instead of the Greens, it was Garth Greenhand and the order named for him. As well, it could foreshadow the armies of winter, making their way to the Riverlands. Instead of the undead, this is the un-undead. But back in current times, this display was a mocking reminder of the fish feed and the fates of their friends. Some may have even recognized the occasional corpse through some distinct marking or another. An awful way to find out an acquaintance has passed. Just awful in general, really. But soldiers see much death on campaign, and they trudged onward. Yet this too was anticipated. As they became accustomed to such scenes, the trap tightened. 
in the village commons at Crossdowns, another of the ghastly feasts was found. Familiar with such sights by now, Sir Criston's outriders grimaced and rode past, paying no heed to the rotting dead, until the corpses sprang up and fell upon them. A dozen died before they realised it had all been a ploy, the work, as was learned later, of a merish sellsword in the service of Lord Vance, a former mummer called Black Trombo. Black Trombo's background brought an unexpected twist to the battlefield, and the gradual weakening of the Green Army set up the final act for one of the main characters on stage. Escaping from the horrors of the forest, they struck out overland towards the Blackwater, but their route was predictable, if not revealed to the river lords via the aforementioned deserters from the Kingmaker's forces. So it wasn't long before they found themselves effectively surrounded and cut off by a numerically superior foe. Not just that, the blacks hadn't just marched through a hellish landscape with little to eat, so there really wasn't a single advantage held by the Greens here. The Kingmaker is said to have understood that this was the end, referring to the enemy army as our death to one of his squires. He made an attempt to parley, which was accepted by Longleaf the Lion Slayer, Garibald Grey, and Roddy the Ruin. He offered to surrender. The three of them rejected him soundly. Perhaps they wanted it heard across the realm that the mighty Kingmaker wasn't just a corpse, but defeated on the battlefield. Such a deed would ring loudly across the realm, not to mention the winter wolves remained dead set on dying in battle, which one can't achieve by accepting surrenders. Still, no one was terribly excited about crossing swords with Sir Criston directly, and no one did. Red Rob Rivers dropped him from a distance, apparently doing so after Cole drew his sword, which is a big faux pas during a parley. It's a curious moment and a huge breach of etiquette, Recall in A Feast for Crows that Littlefinger bribed Sir Lynn Corbray to breach a parley by doing just that, drawing his sword, causing a huge uproar among the other lords present. Normally, if surrender isn't accepted, the two sides cease negotiations and head off to prepare for battle. They don't simply attack each other right then and there at the negotiating table. One of the best examples is Renly versus Stannis at Storm's End. The battle never actually happened, of course. But when talks broke down, they went back to their armies after agreeing to fight at dawn. Here, however, Cole didn't go back to his army. He drew his sword the moment the surrender was rejected. In response, we're told the arrows flew at a signal, as if they expected Cole to try something, or were at least wary. After all, Cole's reputation preceded him. This was a man known to be tricky, having planned the trap at Rook's Rest, and even more so the darkly cunning Cargill twin assassination plot. He also apparently slew Lord Beesbury in council just before the war broke out, so this isn't a man with a lot of scruples about when and where honor should be upheld. Sticking with the example of Stannis and Renly, again, that battle never happened because Renly was assassinated. Cole may have been of a similar mind, using the parley as a means to get close to the black commanders as a last-ditch effort, hoping to kill them while their guard was down. He's certainly not above such a plan. That's what the Dornish will do to King Daron I 30 years after this, using negotiation as a cover for an assassination. Dishonorable? Perhaps. But it was that or submit to conquest. Cole knew he was doomed here and may have decided to take the only chance he saw. So in this case, 
Was Cole drawing his sword as a sign of a last-ditch subterfuge or a simple last stand? You decide. Either way, dangerous until the very end, he wanted to take a few more foes to hell with him on the way. But the bowmen got there first. A Blackwood bastard on a ridge dropping arrows on the deadliest knight in the realm? One who had started a civil war? Excellent example of history repeating itself quite sneakily. Or rather... Damon Blackfire and Bloodraven will be the ones repeating history some 60 years after this. Leaderless and already demoralized, the battle that ensued was called the Butcher's Ball because it was so unbalanced. The black casualties were light, the greens near absolute. Had Sir Criston made it across the Blackwater, he very likely would have made it the rest of the way, as they'd be mostly clear of the worst of their foes. At this point in our reckoning, the farther south one goes, the more green and less black the territory is. The loss to the greens was immense. They lacked quality leadership already, and flawed as the kingmaker was, they didn't have anyone better. He had been famous for 25 plus years, a knight of the Kingsguard for 24, lord commander for 18, and for, well, not very long. Perhaps no Kingsguard knight caused the deaths of as many as Sir Criston. Longleaf, the lion slayer, supposedly said, there's tens of thousands dead on your account. Compare him to Sir Ryan Redwine, who held all these same titles as well, though not in wartime. Sir Criston grew up admiring and respecting him, perhaps was inspired by him. But while Sir Ryan would approve of Sir Criston Cole the warrior, perhaps even Sir Criston Knight of the King's Guard, Sir Ryan Redwine would likely not approve of the Kingmaker. The ultimate duty of the king's guard is to protect the king and his family, other than straight up killing them all himself, <laughs> king slayer. There's really nothing quite so harmful to a king's family than driving them into a civil war, and during that war, taking direct steps to kill many of them through assassination. In that, there's a strong argument to be made that he is the worst lord commander of all time. He proved to be the epitome of what Visenya warned against when she created the King's Guard after the conquest. She made her point with the point of Dark Sister. It was still dripping with Aegon's cheek blood when she told him that loyalty mattered far more than prowess. Sir Criston is the very picture of that opposite extreme. This was perhaps foreshadowed back on the day Sir Criston's morning star rose to knock Dark Sister from Prince Damon's hand to win the day. Prince Damon was her unwitting champion that day, but Visenya's wishes for the King's Guard's values were knocked aside along with the sword she had borne in life. Well, at least she turned out to be right. Recall that Sir Ryan himself was considered an abject failure as hand, but his failures are not even detailed for us, likely indicating they're nowhere near as scandalous or damaging as Cole's. I suspect just general unfitness for the job rather than ambition or abject corruption. Regardless, Sir Criston wasn't the first Lord Commander to be remembered as a poor hand, and likely won't be the last. In the main story, Sir Barristan the Bold rules Marine as Queen's Hand in the absence of his liege, and commands her armies in the battle that's playing out there. And we're not the only ones that sounds familiar to. At every turn, Barristan is conscious of the examples of history, and is uncomfortable with the role he's playing. Only time will tell how far that parallel will go. Nonetheless, like his main story counterpart, 
Kristen Cole was peerless as a warrior, recognized as the finest of his era on multiple occasions. His reputation was such that few would even face him at all, even at the end. Especially at the end. Turnabout is fair play, they say, and as Cole had done with the head of Maylis the Red Queen, after winning at Rook's Rest, they did to him. In life, he led the Greens with his head held high. In death, he led the Blacks, and his head was held even higher by someone else on the tip of a spear. Radio Westeros and History of Westeros are powered by patrons, and it's time for us to take a moment to say thank you to the following. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from Beyond the Wall. A Laurel of Glory, in the name of love, to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien, and Arbiter of Scotch, from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. A History of Westeros Blood Riders, Kohokoe called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow. Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. Screenwriter Catherine Van Pelt, wielder of Valyrian steel quill, slayer of unoriginal screenplays. The Sellsword Captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Weirwood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is futile. Chiron Calsbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, the torrent breaks upon the stone. Hema Helminth, Captain of the Whispering Children, dead men tell no secrets. Shepherd, the Shepherd of Essos, all men are sheep before the Shepherd, heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lexara Dazo, the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female, Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, Captain of the Shadow Wolves, Our Steel is Cold, Our Vengeance Colder. Black Alexand, the Bastard of Spears, Leader of the Bermuda Vanguard, Vorian of House Betterfetter, Captain of the Golden Fetters, we face oppression with style. Aegon the Underestimated, Captain of the Clanking Dragons. Our clank is clank as clank. Lady Sarah Connolly the Willful, wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. Jenny's patron. Radio Westeros Valyrian Steel patrons. Arrowdo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Blythe Spirit, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Christian, Margie the Mage, David, Dean, Dibbles and Bits, Drew, Ileana Targaryen, Sir Source Delica, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, screenwriter Catherine Van Pelt, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infane Darius the Unspeakable Terror, Liam, Boss, the Sothorian, Sally, Tristis Lorien, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Lord Tim the Shirtless, Master of Twenty Questions, Protector of the Grill, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Diarlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. The Rose Road has its thorn. If Sir Criston had survived the Riverlands, he wouldn't have been the only one trying to intersect with Lord Hightower's army via the road to Tumbleton. Other survivors of his army did make their way south, and others, with more cause to hide their identity, were also on the road. 
In particular, Aegon's family had to flee King's Landing. To increase their chances of reaching safety, the three Targaryens went in three different directions. Aegon, north to Dragonstone, and Jaehaerys, south to the Stormlands, while two-year-old Maelor and his guardian Sir Rickard Thorne headed southwest, seeking the safety of the Reach, stronghold of green support. While no one in story is yet aware of it, we know that Aegon II had safely washed ashore on Dragonstone, as well his daughter, six-year-old Princess Jahera, and her guardian, Sir Willis Fell, would eventually arrive safely at Storm's End without incidents of note. Sir Rickard, however, he surely couldn't have known that his chosen route would take him directly through what would soon become the front of the war, and that to reach the Reach, he'd have to pass directly through the gathering Black Army at Tumbleton, and then share the road with scores of refugees heading south, even as hundreds more headed north, all seeking shelter as the two armies readied for their next encounter. That flood of humanity would eventually sweep the infant prince and his protector into the town of Bitterbridge, where the northern and southern tides of refugees would collide. But for now, we turn our attention to Longtable in the Reach. When we last saw the army led by Lord Ormond Hightower and accompanied by Prince Daron Targaryen and his dragon, they were besieging the seat of House Merryweather, which lay 80 leagues southwest of King's Landing, along the road the Green Army was following to the capital. In the previous episode, we noted that Lord Ormond's army had become a monstrous threat, absorbing its enemies as it marched rather than destroying them. Longtable was held by a Lady Merriweather of unknown first name, who might have been the widow of Lord Merriweather, who had been executed by the Greens the previous year for refusing to forswear his oath to Rhaenyra in favor of Aegon. While the relationship isn't specified... She could have been widow, sister, mother, or some other relative. This Lady Merriweather was the ruler at Longtable, and at first, she also stayed true to Queen Rhaenyra, even as her predecessor had done. As the siege stretched on, the steady stream of refugees headed north towards Bitterbridge, which was also held by a widow whose husband had been executed by Aegon II for refusing to swear loyalty to him. More recently, Tom Flowers, the bastard of Bitterbridge, had been one of the black commanders at the Battle of the Honeywine until he was roasted by Tessarion. This Lady Caswell, seeing her town overrun by desperate small folk and broken men, closed the gates to her castle and would let none enter. But plenty entered the town itself, and those not all from the south. They were refugees on the road from the Riverlands, seeking a place of safety away from armies and dragons, which they surely had yet to find on this southern road, and folk from King's Landing as well, people who sought shelter from what they were certain was the imminent destruction of that city by dragon flame. And among those travelers from the north came a man walking with a staff, carrying his son on his back, seeking shelter for a night at an inn called the Hogshead. This man might have been better off had he sought the shelter of a hedgerow along the road, for when he bought his berth in the stable with a shiny silver stag, the innkeeper became greedy and, keeping the man distracted with a mug of ale, sent a servant to search the man's bags. What the servant found not only sealed the fate of the town of Bitterbridge, but would become a deciding factor in the fate of Rhaenyra Targaryen as well. 
A priceless dragon egg hidden in a stable would cause quite a bit of excitement at the best of times, but a priceless dragon egg wrapped in what was obviously a Kingsguard cloak belonging to a man accompanied by a young boy in the midst of a city held by Rhaenyra's supporters did more than that. Realizing he had been recognized, the man, who was of course Sir Rickard Thorne of Egan's Kingsguard, cut his way free of the crowd in the inn's common room and fled with his quote-unquote son, None other than, of course, the missing Prince Maelor, making his way to the bridge that gave the town its name, undoubtedly hoping to win free and join Lord Hightower's army not far away at Longtable. We'll never actually know what was in his mind, though, since he found the bridge heavily guarded and ultimately became trapped on its span between two groups of men. Sir Rickard fought valiantly but was brought down by a volley of crossbow bolts and he fell, clutching the child he was trying to protect. Did Sir Rickard have time to wonder if the boy might have been safer left in King's Landing as Queen Rhaenyra's prisoner? Surely she wouldn't have murdered a mere babe in cold blood. Well, remember that from the Green perspective, Rhaenyra had already done exactly that with the boy's elder brother in the Blood and Cheese incident. Whatever she could have done with her youngest nephew, however cannot have compared to what happened to the child after his guardian fell. Every man and woman in the town knew that a huge reward had been offered by the queen in King's Landing for the return of her brother's son. Her intentions didn't matter a bit in the face of the greed of the mob at Britterbridge, who fell to arguing over who would take control of the child and thus the reward. Various accounts tell the story of Maylor's fate differently. Mushroom says that a simple and enormous washerwoman called Willow Poundstone tried to claim the boy as her own and held him so tightly that he was crushed to death. Septon Eustace names a butcher of the town who cut the boy into pieces with a cleaver so that the reward could be shared out, while Munkin simply states that the child was torn to pieces by the mob. Lady Caswell and her knights emerged from behind their castle walls too late to help Maylor. All the widow could do was chase off the mob and send the body of Sir Rickard, accompanied by his young charge's head, the rest of his body being nowhere to be found, to Queen Rhaenyra in King's Landing. And she also recovered Maylor's egg and sent that to Lord Hightower at Longtable, perhaps thinking that she could buy herself some favor from the Greens following the vicious debacle that she was sure would lead to the gods cursing her town. She couldn't have been more wrong about the former, although she was pretty right about the latter. And, in fact, she actually might have done better to send the egg to Rhaenyra as well and refrain from drawing the attention of the army at Longtable. Another thing we cannot know is whether the situation in Bitterbridge prompted the surrender of Longtable. Did Prince Daron, frustrated with the siege, threaten to unleash Tessarion if Lady Merriweather didn't open her gates? Maybe. Whatever the reason, she did indeed choose this time to open the gates and was treated mercifully by Lord Hightower, though he stripped every resource he could from the town to feed his hungry army. And then they marched on Bitterbridge. When Lady Caswell requested the same terms that had been given to Lady Merriweather, it was Prince Daron who gave the reply. You shall receive the same terms you gave my nephew Maylor. The sack of Bitterbridge began. The entire town was burned and its population put to the sword, When a resigned Lady Caswell opened her castle gates, all she could do was plead for mercy for her children before hanging herself from the gatehouse to avoid the inevitable. 
Daron and Tessarion's vengeance was a terrible thing, and every person in the town, with the exception of those young Caswell children, was killed. With Bitterbridge burned and Maelor avenged, the Green Army continued its march towards King's Landing, headed for a small but prosperous market town at the headwaters of the Mander, a place where the war seemed to be converging. Showdown at Tumbleton. Tumbleton lies some 50 leagues southwest of King's Landing and was the last fortified castle between Lord Hightower's army and the city. Back in King's Landing, Rhaenyra and her council had decided to send two dragon riders, the Seeds, Hugh Hammer and Ulf the White, riding Vermithor and Silverwing respectively, to aid in the defense of Tumbleton and slow the advance of the Green Army. That army now numbered more than 20,000, and they were, of course, accompanied by Daron and Tessarion. Against that, the defenders at Tumbleton numbered somewhere between six and 12,000. Let's take an average and call it nine, as Gildane does. As for who the defenders were, we'll also take Gildane's word for it. On the headwaters of the mighty Manda stood Tumbleton, a thriving market town and the seat of House Footley. The castle overlooking the town was stout but small, garrisoned by no more than 40 men, but thousands more had come up river from Bitterbridge, Longtable and farther south. The arrival of a strong force of riverlords swelled their numbers further and stiffened their resolve. Fresh from their victory at the Butcher's Ball came Sir Garibald Grey and Longleaf the Lion Slayer, with the head of Sir Criston Cole upon a spear, Red Rob Rivers and his archers, the last of the Winter Wolves, and a score of landed knights and petty lords whose lands lay along the banks of the Blackwater, amongst them such men of note as Mosslander of Yore, Sir Garrick Hall of Middleton, Sir Merrill the Bold, and Lord Owain Burney. As noteworthy as some of those names might be, outnumbered by at least two to one, and against a fire-breathing dragon, they stood little chance. And so the arrival of Hugh Hammer and Ulf the White with their dragons must have seemed like salvation. Vermithor and Silverwing were the oldest of the remaining dragons of House Targaryen, excepting only Aemon's Vagar and possibly Daemon's Caraxes, both away in the Riverlands. Formerly ridden by King Jaehaerys I and his wife Queen Alysanne, the two of them could certainly have made swift work of Daron and Tessarion, as they had been ordered by Rhaenyra to bring a new field of fire to the Green Army. It was set in a way that one might expect a close battle. One side had a lot more men, but the other had fortifications and two dragons instead of one. But these balancing factors were quickly reversed. Prior to the battle, men working for the Greens had infiltrated the bands of refugees fleeing the war, some of whom got inside Tumbleton, at first appearing to fight for the blacks. At the opportune moment, they worked to stab defenders in the back and open the gates for their allies on the outside. Even this could have been overcome, perhaps. But when two dragons versus one became three versus none, it became a massacre. With Vermithor and Silverwing joining Tessarion instead of opposing her... Tumbleton went up in flame. Shops, homes, sets, people, all. 
men fell burning from gatehouse and battlements or stumbled shrieking through the streets like so many living torches. Outside the walls, Prince Daron swooped down on Tesserion. Pate of Longleaf was unhorsed and trampled. Sir Garibald Grey, pierced by a crossbow bolt, then engulfed by dragon flame. The two betrayers scourged the town with whips of flame from one end to the other. We've mentioned a number of times in this series that the riders who had been given control of these dragons were in utterly unknown quantity for the blacks. Their quality as men was untested except by the battle in the gullet, where they proved themselves to be capable of burning ships from the air with no green dragon riders to oppose them. They had also proven themselves to be resentful of the relative lack of reward they'd been offered by the queen. From their perspective, Adam Valerian had been made heir to Driftmark, while Metals had become a particular favorite of the queen's consort, Prince Damon. Hugh and Ulf had been knighted and granted small tracts of land. Rhaenyra refusing on two occasions to offer them larger, more attractive rewards. And so, while the maesters may be accurate in saying we'll never know exactly why the two dragon riders made the decisions they did, we could never say that what became known as the treasons of Tumbleton was a surprise. Whether it was cowardice, as alleged by Mushroom, or avarice, as suggested by others, or something more nefarious that motivated them, or a combination of all that, The men who would be known forever as the two betrayers chose the beginning of the battle at Tumbleton to switch their allegiance. Even though we can't say for certain, it's worth unpacking what the motivating factors for the betrayers might have been. Mushroom, as we said, alleged cowardice and the prospect of facing not just Tessarian, but potentially Aemond and Vagar, may have induced just enough terror in the two dragon riders to lead to their betrayal, especially when considering the Black Army was outnumbered by as much as two or three to one. And of course, there are the aforementioned poor rewards offered by Rhaenyra so far. For whatever reason, and classism looms large as a likely scenario, Hugh and Ulf had not been rewarded as they thought they should have been. They hadn't even been rewarded as Prince Damon thought they should have been. Add in a dose of not feeling fully accepted by the black leaders. There's that classism again. And it's clear that these two were turncloaks waiting to happen. Now, those two factors alone might seem enough. But what if there was someone in the Red Keep who became aware of the discontent brewing and thought to capitalize on it? Gildane puts a name to this possibility, and the name is Lars Strong. No doubt they hoped that King Aegon II might reward them better should they help return the Iron Throne to him. It might even be that certain promises were made to them in this regard, possibly through Lord Laris the Clubfoot or one of his agents, though this remains unproven and unprovable. Indeed, the maesterly accounts of the battle simply recount the events, doing little to describe strategy or planning, let alone the sort of subterfuge the Master of Whispers was capable of. Though we don't know the exact details, surely there were plans in place on both sides. Hindsight, as they say, is twenty twenty, And with the benefit of hindsight, we can see numerous pieces being moved into place to influence the outcome of the battle destined to take place at Tumbleton. 
From the betrayers to the men who infiltrated the Black Army from both North and South, a pattern emerges. But to the Black commanders on the ground, no such conclusion would be reached. Quite the opposite. As we've said, the arrival of Hugh and Ulf most likely led to a certain degree of confidence that they almost certainly hadn't felt previously. The Blacks had taken the field in front of Tumbleton in advance of the Greens' arrival, perhaps hoping to draw them close and packed tightly where the dragons could do maximum damage. As the Green army pressed, the Blacks gave way and retreated for the gates. Now, This too could have been part of the plan, as the walls were well covered by Red Rob River's bowmen and the Greens found themselves under heavy fire. Drawing the Reachmen into bow range makes a certain sense, perhaps even more so when you have the best archer in the realm on your side. He may have been capable of shooting down a dragon rider if he got the chance, but he wouldn't. The Greens likely knew of Red Rob River's presence, but they surely knew that Vermithor and Silverwing were present. It's not the sort of thing that you can easily conceal— that the Green Commanders advanced on Tumbleton without fear, even knowing that they had the disadvantage in dragons, might be because they already had assurance that these problems had been handled. There are other explanations. Maybe the Reachmen were simply too proud to do anything but advance, that they couldn't back down in the face of dragons when the riders were so low-born. But this army of Greens had marched all the way from Old Town with Tessarian. Last episode, we detailed the value of the Blue Queen to them, that they learned in detail how useful she was, not just in battle, but as a scout and in terrifying men and horses from a distance. Even if these lords of the Reach looked down on Hugh Hammer and Ulf the White, it's difficult to believe someone could ever look down on the threat of Vermithor and Silverwing. At nearly every point in the war, whenever battle is joined, the day is won by the side with more dragons. Prince Damon certainly no coward, avoided dragon-on-dragon -dragon conflict. Kristen Cole repeatedly cited the number of dragons as a prime factor when considering how to proceed with the campaign. We must strongly consider, then, that as Lord Ormond Hightower ordered his men towards the gates of Tumbleton, he and his officers knew that a series of betrayals would come, that the defenders would be severely and completely undermined. Why storm the walls when you know someone's going to open the door for you? Why risk being shot by an archer on the walls when you know someone is about to stab them in the back or fry them to a crisp? They knew everything was well in hand or was about to be. But they surely didn't know winter was coming. Winter's wolves, that is. The last ride of the winter's wolves is the moment we quoted at the start of the episode and one of the most memorable of the entire war. Roddy the Ruin led his men out of Postern Gate to sweep around the left flank of the Greens while screaming their terrible northern war cries. Unlike the fish feed in the Butcher's Ball, where they were trying to kill as many as possible, this time it was about taking out the leaders. This time, the wolf intended to bite the head off the snake. Sir Brynden Hightower, Lord Ormond's cousin, put himself between the Northmen and his liege, taking off the ruined shield arm at the shoulder with one terrible blow of his long axe. Yet the savage Lord of Barriton fought on, slaying both Sir Brynden and Lord Ormond before he died. Lord Hightower's banners toppled, and the townsfolk gave a great cheer, thinking the tide of battle turned. 
Roddy the Ruin didn't just aim to die in battle, he aimed to take Lord Ormond with him, and unlike Sir Criston, he succeeded. Three arrows stopped Cole, but even the loss of an arm didn't break the Lord of Barrowton's final charge. His wounds didn't prevent the completion of that final, singularly bloody task. So despite the Greens winning an astonishing and resounding victory, they lost even more of their leadership. The Blacks, on the other hand, lost everyone present, leaders and soldiers both. This was an army that had won several battles of note with heroic figures emerging, only to be completely wiped out. Again, we can compare this to the other battles they won at the Fish Feed and the Butcher's Ball. Like those, the so-called First Battle of Tumbleton wasn't a typical case where one side loses and retreats to fight another day. The Dance of the Dragons continues to add to its already enormous body count by having yet another result in which an army is utterly annihilated. Worse, though, it wasn't just an army destroyed, but an entire town, as the winners did their worst. The sack that followed was as savage as any in the history of Westeros. Tumbleton, that prosperous market town, was reduced to ash and embers. Thousands burned and as many died by drowning as they tried to swim the river. Some would later say that they were the fortunate ones for no mercy was shown to the survivors. This is perhaps an unfortunate side effect of the Winter Wolves' song-worthy charge Without a strong lord to restrain them, even good men can turn to beasts, writes Gildane. And we can't disagree. The army had lost very little, except for its leaders. So, a maximum number of victorious greens set about drunkenly looting, torturing, and all around doing their worst to the town as it burned around them. We don't know the character of Lord Ormond Hightower particularly well, but it is possible he would have kept his men under better control than that. Or not. He may not have had strong feelings on the matter. Now men like the two betrayers and Lord Borney, one of the men who opened the gates from the inside, were in charge. And that's not good for anyone. Another sign of things falling apart. The only silver lining for the Blacks was that the Greens were too busy pillaging to be a threat for the moment. The army that could have marched on King's Landing was instead gorging itself on civilians. The few leaders that tried to stop the worst were unsuccessful, overwhelmed, and outnumbered. Recall again these words in the theme of our episode. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Meanwhile, in King's Landing. As Tumbleton is not far... It wasn't long before Rhaenyra heard the terrible news. She ordered the city gates closed so that no turnclose could enter the city incognito as they did at Tumbleton. Then, with anger and fear fresh on their minds, thanks to the two betrayers, her council fell to debating the loyalty of the remaining two dragon seeds. With Lord Bartimos Celtigar, the master of coin, falling back on that old Westerosi maxim, bastards are treacherous by nature, the scales began to tip against Nettles and Adam Valarian. 
Lord Celtigar was supported by the commander of the City Watch and the Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard in suggesting that Adam and Nettles, who wasn't even present, be seized and imprisoned preemptively in order to avoid any further betrayals that would lead to the enemy gaining more dragons. The concern was real. Against the three dragons now supporting the Green's army, Tessarion, Vermithor, and Silverwing, King's Landing only had Rhaenyra's Cyrax, Prince Joffrey's Taraxes, Morgul, Shrykos, and Dreamfire, all bound to Green's and not to be considered as part of any defense, and Adam Valerian's Sea Smoke. Since Joffrey and Taraxes were also not to be considered as defenders due to Rhaenyra's fear of losing another son, the Count truly stood at two against three. If Adam should prove false, it could be four against one, and thus her counselors played upon Rhaenyra's fears. Only Corlys Velaryon, Adam's father, or grandfather, depending on which story you believe, and Grand Maester Girardi spoke in defense of Adam Velaryon and Nettles. The Grand Maester said that they had no proof of any disloyalty on the parts of Nettles and Sir Adam. The path of wisdom was to seek such proof before making any judgments. Lord Corlys went much further, declaring that Sir Adam and his brother Alan were true Valerians, worthy heirs to Driftmark. As for the girl, though she might be dirty and ill-favoured, she had fought valiantly in the Battle of the Gullet. In spite of the fact that Fire and Blood tells us that Rhaenyra had come to expect treachery from everyone around her, the moderation of the Sea Snake and Gerardus might have prevailed had the Queen not summoned Lady Misery and requested her opinion. And now, the tangled sexual history of Daemon Targaryen almost certainly had an impact. His history with Mizaria of Lys is well known, and we've mentioned that they may have resumed their relationship when she returned to King's Landing to serve his wife. But there were also persistent rumors about him and Nettles, though as we mentioned in a previous installment, she might just easily have been his natural daughter as his lover. However, Lady Misery seemed certain of her conclusion, and as Mistress of Whispers, it would surely have carried a lot of weight with Rhaenyra. The girl has already betrayed you, my queen. Even now she shares your husband's bed, and soon enough, she will have his bastard in her belly. We have to wonder if Mazaria was truly convinced of this fact, or if she merely suspected it, as so many others did. And if so, whether she had truly resumed her relationship with Damon and so viewed Nettles as a rival, or whether she had not, and in effect jealously viewed Nettles as the cause. In either case, we think this was a prime opportunity for Lady Misery to rid herself of the girl. Her words certainly had effect on the queen and upon the hopes of the blacks. And this may actually be the heart of Mizaria's intent. Remember that it was Rhaenyra's father who had banished the pregnant Mizaria from Dragonstone, leading to her miscarrying Damon's child on the journey to Essos all those years ago. For someone as cunning and callous as Lady Misery, perhaps sowing seeds of discontent inside Damon and Rhaenyra's family was the vengeance she desired. If so, it would seem she was successful. The queen, with her heart now hardened against all betrayers and potential betrayers, ordered the arrest of Adam Valerian and the immediate execution of the girl Nettles via a secret message to be sent to Lord Mooton at Maidenpool, where Damon had based himself. While the seeds had now been sown for further tragedy, 
the fate of Nettles and Damon will be left for another day. On that day in King's Landing, however, Adam Valerian was forewarned and so escaped the dragon pit with sea smoke before Luther Largent and his gold cloaks were able to make their arrest. Certain that it was Lord Corlys that had warned his heir, Largent then returned to the Red Keep, where he found the sea snake in the Tower of the Hand and had him arrested, beaten, and thrown in the Black Cells. Rhaenyra, content as she was to see her former father-in-law, Hand, commander of her navy, and main supporter summarily tossed in a dungeon, remained unconvinced that Major Girardis had taken no part in the betrayal. But in the face of his denials and bearing in mind his long and leal service to her, she contented herself with yet another fateful decision, he was banished back to Dragonstone, for she could not forget that he had defended both Adam Valarian and Nettles. There's a good reason they call Paranoia the Destroyer. Fear is the mind killer. The situation in King's Landing was grim. With the gates closed against possible spies and turncloaks, the city's inhabitants were unable to leave to seek safety. Many became convinced that a firestorm of dragon versus dragon was inevitable and that the city would burn and suffer as Tumbleton had. Some hid themselves and their belongings in cellars and pits, many of which had been dug as Rhaenyra and her dragon riders took control of the city. Still more sought solace in taverns and brothels, while others turned to prayer. It was the group who thought to seek help from the divine that enabled one of the most dangerous situations to arise from Rhaenyra's choices regarding the betrayers. An itinerant brother, perhaps one of the outlawed poor fellows, or perhaps a common criminal with a great sense of timing, began preaching in the streets of King's Landing in the days following the departure of Adam Valarian and arrest of the sea snake. A barefoot scarecrow of a man in a hair shirt and rough spun breeches, filthy and unwashed and smelling of the sty, with a begging bowl hung around his neck on a leather thong. A thief he had been, for where his right hand should have been was only a stump covered by ragged leather. He was known only as the Shepherd, and his sermons delivered in Cobbler's Square called for the destruction of Rhaenyra and her dragons. His followers would grow to number in the thousands, and his message was not just death to the blacks. He spoke against all things Valyrian, the entirety of House Targaryen, and every single dragon in Westeros. His deranged fulminating would soon climax in some of the darkest days of the conflict for the blacks and the citizens of King's Landing. And the days were indeed dark in King's Landing during Rhaenyra's occupation in 130. In our last episode, we mentioned the unpopularity of her master of coin, Lord Bartimus Celtigar, and the taxes he levied in the name of his queen. Not only did he tax the inhabitants and business owners inside the city, but he levied new tolls and fees upon all the merchants and traders who had been stranded at the city's docks when the Valarian fleet closed the gullet. Though all could prove they had already paid their dues, Celtigar's position was that those payments had been made to the Greens and, quote, paying coin to the usurper is proof of naught but treason. Any who would not or could not pay were arrested, their ships and cargoes seized. Lord Celtigar also decided to make a profit from the executions of rebels and traitors, of which there were many. Such executions, he had decreed, would henceforth be held in the dragon pit, with the corpses being fed to the queen's dragons. Citizens were welcome to view these events, but the cost of admission would be three pennies. And then, in the aftermath of Adam Valerian's escape from the city... Lord Celtigar also suggested a tax on any child born out of wedlock. The so-called bastard tax would raise needed funds for the crown, while 
presumably, or maybe hopefully in his view, ending what he saw as the stain of bastardy. But Rhaenyra never had the chance to approve this last suggestion because the arrest of her hand and kinsman Corlys Velaryon was having the completely understandable effect of his supporters abandoning her in droves. Many escaped the city to head back to Driftmark, while still others joined the shepherd's supporters in Cobbler Square. Worse still was the pair of sworn swords who attempted to fight their way into the Black Cells to rescue their lord. Though that plot was foiled by Lady Misery, it could only underline the fact that Rhaenyra's coalition was falling apart. And the day that the would-be rescuers were executed at the Red Keep, yet another horror would be visited upon House Targaryen. While the two men were executed at dawn, at sunset the same day, Helena Targaryen, sister and wife to Aegon the Elder and half-sister to Rhaenyra, threw herself from the window of the apartment she had been confined to in Maegor's Holdfast, perishing on the spikes that lined the dry moat below. We mentioned in the last episode that Helena and her mother had been taken captive when Rhaenyra took the city. Alicent had remained defiant even as her father was executed for treason. On one occasion, she had pleaded with her stepdaughter to divide the realm with her half-brother to avoid further bloodshed. Rhaenyra had flatly refused, telling her stepmother, Your sons might have had places of honor at my court if they had kept faith, but they sought to rob me of my birthright, and the blood of my sweet sons is on their hands. As if Rhaenyra's obvious thirst for vengeance wasn't enough, Alicent apparently made the extremely unwise reply, Bastard blood shed at war. My son's sons were innocent boys, cruelly murdered. How many more must die to slake your thirst for vengeance? Rhaenyra's sensitivity to the claim that her Valarian sons were bastards was certainly nothing new, and so perhaps her reply... Speak again of bastardy, and I will have your tongue torn out. Was understandable, and it was certainly predictable. After all, her own father, Alicent's late husband, had once made a similar decree, from which his own family was explicitly not excluded. It was the aftermath of this incident that one of Mushroom's more prurient tales relates. While Munkin leaves the story at Rhaenyra's unfulfilled threat, Mushroom claims that Rhaenyra would have had Alicent's tongue torn out then and there had not Lady Misery suggested another, more fitting punishment. According to Mushroom, Alicent and her daughter Helena would be taken to a brothel in the city and there sold for the price of one gold dragon for the mother and three for the daughter to any man with coin to pay. Mysaria's brutal suggestion was... Let them remain there until they're with child. They speak of bastards so freely. Let them each have one of their very own. While few put much of any stock in the story of the brothel queens, we cannot deny that many of Mushroom's tales, shocking as they are, seem to have grains of truth in them. Do we believe that Rainier sold her stepmother and half-sister to anyone who could pay the price? The sordid story seems to have originated in King's Landing around this time, though according to Gildane, it's possible it was a later invention that sought to justify other brutalities committed by Aegon II. However, it cannot be denied that poor Helena, whose mind had been disturbed, if not altogether broken, by the death of her son Jaehaerys at the hands of blood and cheese, died of apparent suicide mere weeks after being taken captive by her half-sister Rhaenyra. Others said it was simply the sight of the two Valerian knights being executed that led to her despair. This makes little sense, as Rhaenyra executing her own followers would hardly be cause for despair to the Greens. 
Still others said that Myceria chose that day to inform Helena of the death of her son, Maelor, perhaps hoping for such an outcome from the obviously fragile Helena. Whatever the truth of the matter, on the day after her death, rumors began to circulate in King's Landing that she had been thrown to her death by agents of the Queen, murdered by her sister out of spite because Prince Daron and his dragons were approaching, and Rhaenyra wished to deny her half-sister the joy of being rescued. This was in spite of the fact that the accused murderer, the commander of the Gold Cloaks, Sir Luther Largent, was across the city with his men and nowhere near Magor's at the time of Helena's death. It was the shepherd who loudly repeated this rumor to the people of King's Landing, though Mushroom asserts that Aegon's master whisperers, Lara Strong, had originated the idea from some hidden lair inside the city. Wherever and however the rumor started, by the end of the day of Helena's death, the city, quote, rose in bloody riot. The bloody riot. It began in Flea Bottom. But as the chaos spread, the shepherd continued to preach his vision of apocalypse. The stranger was coming to King's Landing, he claimed, bearing a doom that would cleanse the city of sin and of demons, undoubtedly the dragons and their Targaryen masters against whom he railed. And for Lord Bartimus Celtigar and his son, the stranger did indeed arrive as rioters broke into their lightly guarded manse and killed them both. When the crowd in Cobbler Square reached 10,000 strong, Sir Luther Largent led 500 gold cloaks into the city where they formed a shield wall and set about trying to sweep the rioters from the streets. Heavily armed they may have been, 500 men couldn't stand long against 10,000, and before too long the rioters broke their wall and overwhelmed them, even dragging the enormous Luther Largent from his horse and, in shades of the future fate of Sir Aaron Santigar and the bread riot of 299, his head was bashed in with a rock, leaving his corpse recognizable only by its size. As that night wore on, in various parts of the city, the disaffected citizens declared new lords and kings. A man called Watt the Tanner, who had helped murder Lord Celtigar, declared an end to all taxes, while a group of sex workers in the Street of Silk declared a new king in a four-year-old boy called Gaiman, whom they claimed was a bastard son of Aegon II. A 16-year-old squire called Tristane was asserted to be a bastard of King Viserys by his master, a hedge knight known as Perkin the Flea, and hundreds of men pledged themselves to him as Sir Perkin made knights of one and all. When the sun rose after that first night, the city seethed with lawlessness and the streets were littered with corpses. Some of the queen's knights were able to restore order to small areas in the north part of the city, but Flea Bottom and the surrounding area remained under the control of the rioters. Sir Torin Manderley made it back to the Red Keep with a loss of only a quarter of his men, while the Lord Commander of Rhaenyra's Queen's Guard, Sir Laurent Marbran, lost his own life and those of more than 80 of the men he led into Flea Bottom. Rhaenyra was in despair, but she apparently still felt safe enough within the Red Keep. She spent the day sending messages to her loyal lords in the north in the Vale and named replacements to command the Gold Cloaks and the Queen's Guard. Sir Balin Birch for the Watch and Sir Glendon Good to the Queen's Guard. But dusk brought the mob back in even greater numbers than the night before, and with three of the city's gates now breached and standing wide open, the situation was looking dire indeed. In Cobbler Square, the shepherd continued his ranting, this time to a crowd who carried dozens of severed heads on poles, grisly trophies from the violence of the previous night. The shepherd screamed curses at Rhaenyra and assured the gathered crowd that she couldn't protect them from what they feared was coming— an army of greens led by Aegon Targaryen and Sunfire, who would destroy them all in an orgy of fire and blood. 
Only one thing could save them, he claimed, and he pointed to the dragon pit looming at the top of Rhaenys's hill. There the demons dwell, up there, fire and blood, blood and fire. This is their city. If you would make it yours, first you must destroy them. If you would cleanse yourself of sin, first must you bathe in dragon's blood. For only blood can quench the fires of hell. And as improbable as it seems, the vast mob which Gildane numbers at over 10,000 began to march, armed with torches, knives, and a handful of swords, with the intent of killing the royal dragons. There were four dragons in the pit that night, Prince Joffrey's Taraxes, Helena Targaryen's Dreamfire, who had once been ridden by Reyna Targaryen, wife to Aegon the Uncrowned, and the young dragons Morgul and Shrykos, bonded to Aegon and Helena's twins, Jaehaerys and Jaehaerys. Rhaenyra's Cyrax was chained in the courtyard of the Red Keep. While it seems that Prince Joffrey saw the danger, given his own Tyraxes was one of the four, and Mushroom as well, who told the disdainful queen, a thousand rats can bring down a bear. Rhaenyra remained unmoved. Perhaps she truly believed in the invincibility of dragons, and even dreamed that this latest move by the mob might finally be the end of them. As she told her son, let them burn. The realm will not long miss them. In any case, Rhaenyra doesn't appear to have been inclined to attempt to stop the mob, short of sending messengers to her commanders at the closest gates to Rhaenys's hill to defend the dragons. But given the state of the city, Rhaenyra probably never knew if those messages got through. What is known is that Rhaenyra failed to see Joffrey, leave the roof of Magor's Holdfast, where the royal party was watching events unfold. None suspected where the young prince was heading until they heard Rhaenyra's Cyrax roar from the yard where she had been chained. Moments later, she rose into the sky, with the prince clinging to her back, clutching a sword. Something we'll never know is the entirety of what went through Rhaenyra's mind in those moments as she watched her son fly away on her dragon. Did she then or later regret that she hadn't taken Cyrax herself and flown to the defense of the dragon pit? Surely a full-grown dragon with its own rider on its back would have overcome the mob that was even then storming the gates of the dragon pit, or at least slowed them down for long enough to loose the four in the pit. As it was, all we know is that Rhaenyra panicked when she saw Joffrey astride Cyrax and shouted for the men to bring him back. After him, all of you, every man, every boy, to horse, to horse, go after him, bring him back, bring him back. He does not know, my son, my sweet, my son. What the queen was referring to, Joffrey not knowing, of course, is the fact that dragons, as Gildane puts it, quote, are not horses to be ridden by any man who puts a saddle on its back. Dragons bond with their rider. And we know that in all the long years of Targaryen history in Westeros, not one rider ever tried to mount another rider's dragon while its rider lived. Perhaps in his excitement to save his own dragon and the others, Joffrey forgot this fact, though Rhaenyra's words seem to indicate she may never have had that important conversation with her son. Perhaps he thought that his own mother's dragon could never bring him to harm and would willingly transport him to the pit in effort to save her fellows. In Greek mythology, there's a tale about a boy called Icarus, son of Daedalus, the man who created the famous labyrinth on the island of Crete. 
When Icarus and his father were imprisoned by the king of Crete for helping Ariadne and Theseus to conquer the maze, Daedalus proceeded to create two sets of wings from wax and feathers so the pair could escape. Warning his son not to fly too close to the sun, lest the wax of his wings melt, Daedalus set off, expecting his son to follow his own path. But all too often, children fail to heed the wisdom of their elders, and so it was with Icarus. Caught up in the joy of flight, he flew too close to the sun, his wings melted away, and he plunged into the sea and died. And so, even as a small group of men hurried to obey the queen and rode into the city in a vain effort to retrieve the prince as his mother commanded, Joffrey and Syrax hurtled through the sky above. We say vain, of course, because by this time Joffrey was 200 feet in the air and under assault by spears and arrows and whatever missiles the mob could hurl at the yellow dragon. As Syrax twisted and turned beneath him, trying to both rid herself of the unfamiliar rider and avoid the missiles, Joffrey slid from her back and plunged to earth a Westerosi Icarus, doomed by a sun-yellow dragon, a boy who should definitely have listened to his elders. Joffrey Valerian did not, as Icarus did, fall into the sea. His fate was far less kind. He fell into the city, straight into Flea Bottom and the dark heart of the violence. As Rhaenyra's heir, the last of her Valerian sons, plummeted to earth, his body was broken by roofs, roof slates, and perhaps his own sword, before finally coming to rest in an alley of Flea Bottom. It may be that a candlemaker's daughter did indeed cradle him as he breathed his last, and perhaps his final words were, Mother, forgive me, but we can't know this for certain. What is known is that the mob soon began to desecrate his body and steal whatever he had of value on his person, much as they had done to all of their other victims. And now the story of the men who heeded Rhaenyra's plea to go after her son and save him played out. Known to history as the Seven Who Rode, it was actually a company of 41 who fought their way across the city to retrieve the fallen prince. Gildane identifies them. Sir Medric Manderley, the heir to White Harbor, Sir Loreth Lansdale and Sir Harold Dark, Knights of the Queen's Guard, Sir Harmon of the Reeds, called Ironbanger, Sir Giles Ironwood, an exiled knight from Dawn, Sir Willem Royce, armed with the famed Valyrian sword Lamentation, and Sir Glendon Good, Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard. Six squires, eight gold cloaks, and twenty men-at-arms, rode with the seven champions as well, but their names, alas, have not come down to us. Though the company eventually did win possession of the prince's body, three of them would fall in the fighting. The Dornish knight Giles Ironwood, Sir William Royce, whose famous sword disappeared that day never to be seen again, and Sir Glendon Good of the Kingsguard, Lord Commander for only a day before he was torn apart by the angry mob. As horrific as this scene in the Flea Bottom was, nothing that happened that day can compare to what was playing out at the Dragon Pit. While some gold cloaks did attempt to reach Rhaenys' hill to aid the dragon keepers in protecting the pit, the crowd was simply too large. Armed with, quote, spears, long axes, spiked clubs, and half a hundred other kinds of weapons, including both longbows and crossbows, 
the crowd, estimated to be nearly 10,000 strong, soon overcame the dragon keepers. And then the madness began. The four dragons in the pit that day were all chained. But by the time the mob entered their lair, they were all awake and angry at this intrusion. Though they couldn't fly away, they used tooth and claw and their furnace-hot flames to fight the crowd that threatened them. But it turns out that Mushroom's analogy of a swarm of rats bringing down a bear was quite apt. These rats kept coming, inflicting hundreds of small wounds on the dragons, even as many of their number perished in a welter of fire and blood. Shrykos, a male dragon once bonded to the late Prince Jaehaerys, son of Aegon and Helena, was the first to die. He was a young dragon hatched from the prince's cradle egg, and according to Septon Eustace, he was killed by seven blows from a woodcutter's axe. Morgul, the dragon bound to Princess Jahera, Jaehaerys' twin sister, was the next to perish slain by a man known to history as the Burning Knight, who thrust a spear into the dragon's eye even as he himself was burned alive inside the melting steel of his plate armor. Taraxes, the dragon whom Prince Joffrey no doubt wished to reach, retreated into his lair and swiftly burned so many of his would-be attackers that a wall of corpses formed at the mouth of his cave. Here the planning of the builders of the pit would play against him. All of the dragon's lairs were man-made and purposely constructed to have two entrances, one that fronted the pit and one that opened to the hillside behind. Through this back door, the mob now surged, and Taraxes, entangled in his own chains as he turned to meet this fresh onslaught, fell to the shepherd's followers. This left only Dreamfire, the dragon once ridden by Reyna, daughter of Aenys I, and by the recently deceased Helena. Dreamfire broke free of the chains that bound her and savaged the crowd, but in the enclosed dragon pit, she was unable to fly properly and could only circle the dome of the pit, bathing her attackers in flame and swooping low to attack with tooth and claw. Dreamfire killed more than the other three dragons combined, it said, but there was nowhere she could go to escape the crossbows and spears of her attackers. Ultimately, Blinded in one eye by a crossbow bolt, she flew straight up at the dome of the pit in a last desperate effort to escape. The great ceiling, weakened by repeated blasts of dragonfire, cracked like an egg when Dreamfire struck it at full bore, and tons of broken stone came crashing down upon dragon and dragon slayers alike. It seemed as though that bloody event might end there. The dragon pit itself in ruins, four dragons dead, and an untold number of attackers, numbering from a few hundred to several thousand, depending on who tells the tale. Also dead, burned, crushed, or torn to pieces for their efforts. But there was one more dragon in the city that day, and the shepherd's gruesome work was not yet done. None can say why Cyrax chose to descend upon the pit. Perhaps she was attracted by the blood and noise, like Drogon coming to Daznak's pit in Marine in A Dance with Dragons. Maybe she heard her brothers and sisters roaring as they died, and she came for vengeance. It's clear that she was free and unencumbered and could very easily have flown away to safety, perhaps even back to the Red Keep, where her rider waited. Instead, she descended upon the remains of the pit and the mob, using her claws and her mighty jaws to tear them apart rather than simply raining fire from above. There are conflicting reports of who killed her in the end, ranging from the same woodcutter who killed Shrykos to a knight called Sir Warwick Wheaton, armed with a Valyrian steel blade, perhaps the missing lamentation so recently pillaged from Sir Willem Royce, to the shepherd himself, who's alleged to have summoned a 30-foot-tall demonic apparition, the warrior incarnate, according to some. 
wielding a sword made of black smoke that swept Syrax's head from her body. Rhaenyra was shattered by the loss of her son and her dragon, not to mention the utter annihilation of what she had thought was her triumph over her enemies. Enemies, it turns out, aren't limited to just one hand, and Rhaenyra's own people turned on her when she neglected to remember what exactly it was she was fighting for. In reality, winning the Iron Throne represented the responsibility to care for a city and a kingdom and a people, not simply taking vengeance and gaining victory over her half-brothers. King's Landing was lost and Rhaenyra would have to flee. The very next day, she slipped out the Dragon Gate with no more than three dozen companions, making for the King's Road and what she hoped was the haven of her loyal supporters to the north of the city. But at Rosby, she was denied entrance by the 12-year-old daughter of the previous lord, a one-time supporter of Rhaenyra, whom she had executed earlier that year for the crime of bending the knee to her half-brother. This daughter was the eldest child whom Rhaenyra had seen fit to pass over in favor of a younger brother, and the irony of the girl now having power to deny the homeless queen shelter was probably lost on no one. As we analyze the dance, and fire and blood in general, one thing that continues to be very striking is the number of times George recycles themes, scenarios, and character types in ways large and small. Rhaenyra's flight from King's Landing contains one of those small instances but it's no less striking for being a minor scene. When Rhaenyra left the city and was ultimately denied entrance at Rosby, she was accompanied by, among others, her newly named commander of the City Watch, Sir Balon Birch. If that name sounds sort of familiar, fast forward to the main series where you'll find the husband of Lady Felice Stokeworth is Sir Balman Birch. And you might also recall that when Felice and Sir Balman journeyed to King's Landing to plot with Cersei about the removal of Sir Bronn of the Blackwater from Stokeworth, they were denied entrance to Rosby by that troublesome character known only as the Rosby Ward. So, just another little point of intersection that makes the analysis of these histories so fascinating. And speaking of Stokeworth, when she arrived there, the Queen's party was admitted, but under the condition that they stay only one night. And so the small group pressed on to Duskendale, growing smaller by the day due to desertions and attacks by bands of broken men. The aforementioned Sir Balon Birch was killed in one such attack, and it was with fewer than 30 supporters that Rhaenyra finally reached Duskendale, where again, her welcome was less than warm. In Duskendale, it took the intervention of Sir Harold Dark of the Queen's Guard to convince his distant kin, the Darklands, to give Rainier shelter. When it was grudgingly offered, it was on the condition that her stay be brief. And so Rhaenyra sent messages to her loyal supporters, Lord Creakenstark at Winterfell, Lady Jane Arryn in the Vale, and Maester Girardis at Dragonstone. From the north came the offer of 10,000 seasoned warriors. Though Lord Stark warned it could be weeks or months before they could hope to reach the Crownlands. Lady Arryn offered men as well, but with winter closing the mountain passes, she requested that the Sea Snake send his fleet to Gulltown to transport them. Since the Sea Snake had been left locked in the black cells and his supporters had abandoned Rhaenyra, this offer did little more than add to the Queen's despair. From Dragonstone came no answer at all which Rainier took as proof of disloyalty on the part of Girardis. 
But she knew she must get to Dragonstone, where there was a large cache of dragon eggs. She needed to have a dragon to have any hope of victory. And so she declined offers to seek shelter in the Vale or in White Harbor, and ultimately sold her crown to raise coin to buy passage to Dragonstone on board a Bravosi merchant ship. And as we indicated at the end of the previous installment in this series, she had no idea what was waiting for her there. But we're going to leave Rhaenyra still unknowing as she boards the Bravosi ship Vialand, bound for Dragonstone with her son, Aegon the Younger, a handful of ladies, and three knights of the Queen's Guard, while we return to King's Landing to catch up on the madness that had taken hold of that city. Moon of the Three Kings Rhaenyra had left a small garrison to hold the Red Keep, and when Sir Perkin the Flea showed up outside the castle walls and demanded entry, such were the defenses that surely the Queen's men could have held out for a time. Instead, their commander, a gold cloak called Sir Garth the Harelip, opened the gates and trusted that he and his men would be treated honorably, obviously forgetting the nature of the mob that had been terrorizing the city for days. Sir Garth was executed along with numerous other knights loyal to the Queen. Lady Mazaria, who tried to escape, was captured and whipped through the streets. She was promised that if she could survive to the Gate of the Gods, she would be allowed to go free. She only lasted half the distance. Septon Eustace and Mushroom alone of Rhaenyra's court were spared, and then the madness truly began. From a hiding place somewhere in the castle emerged Laris Strong, Aegon III's Master of Whispers. His reappearance in the Red Keep at a moment of critical chaos very likely proves just how much he was pulling strings there all along, lending credence to the idea that it was his whispers that led to the betrayal of Hugh and Ulf and fed rumors about Rhaenyra murdering her sister Helena, encouraged the shepherd, and who knows what else. Like the rats that Mushroom had told his queen could bring down an angry bear, so could a collection of the right words, whispered in the right ears, bring down a victorious queen. Laris's emergence also invites a comparison to Varys the Spider appearing inside the Red Keep at the end of A Dance with Dragons, which in turn invites a comparison between Masseria and Kyburn, the respective successors of the Clubfoot and the Spider. This is pretty juicy stuff since Lady Misery and Kyburn clearly exist on the same spectrum as enablers, torturers, and information gatherers, though Kyburn has added the study of necromancy to his tool belt, arguably improving on the lessons of the past. And though it might boil down to wait and see in terms of results, we can already speculate that Varys has also learned from history, perhaps this history. It's been made clear that his goal is for his candidate to be a hero, to win the hearts and minds of the people. As we said earlier, Rhaenyra, in her quest for vengeance, forgot about the true responsibilities of leadership and missed the opportunity to win over the populace. At the end of the day, Laris and Maseria's candidates were just fighting over the spoils, and the people they were supposed to be ruling judged them harshly for it. Speaking of people coming out of the darkness, from the black cells emerged Grandmaster Orwile, Lord Corliss Valerian, and Sir Tylan Lannister. Aegon's master of coin who had been blinded, gelded, and otherwise tortured by Rhaenyra's jailers. And from whatever tower room she had been held captive in, Dowager Queen Alicent was brought forth. All of these people, including Lara Strong, were on hand the next day when Sir Perkin's squire mounted the Iron Throne and was declared King Tristane Truefire. And we have to wonder what they, blacks and greens alike, thought of the succession squabble that had brought the realm to this point 
at that moment. King Tristane and Sir Perkin set about repealing all of Rhaenyra's hated taxes, dividing the royal treasury amongst their followers and assembling an army built primarily from the remnants of Rhaenyra's city watch. But Tristane's writ only extended to Aegon's high hill and a handful of city gates. On the hill of Rhaenys, the shepherd still held sway, ranting to his followers about the evils of the wealthy and highborn against a backdrop of five severed dragon heads and the wreckage of the dragon pit. Meanwhile, across the city on Visenya's hill, the four-year-old bastard child, whose mother claimed he was the son of Aegon II, was declared King Gaemon Palehair. His court consisted of mummers, thieves, sex workers, and sellswords. The edicts that issued from Gaemon's court, defended by companies of drunks and rogues, were curiously egalitarian. Gaiman decreed that girls should henceforth be equal with boys in matter of inheritance, that the poor be given bread and beer in times of famine, that men who had lost limbs in war must afterward be fed and housed by whichever lord they had been fighting for when the loss took place. Gaiman decreed that husbands who beat their wives should themselves be beaten, irrespective of what the wives had done to warrant such chastisement. It's hard to argue with any of these decrees from our modern perspective, though in King's Landing at the time most were revolutionary, to say the least. According to Mushroom, most of them originated from a Dornish sex worker called Sylvana Sand, who was paramour to Gaiman's mother. Even for Dorn, Sylvana was likely ahead of her time with these ideas, though it's easy to see how they could grow from what we know of Dornish culture. And thus began what some scholars call the Moon of the Three Kings, though the shepherd never actually styled himself king. The Moon of Madness, others call it, and that may be closer to the truth. But as the mood of the city began to return to a more normal temperature, many of the shepherd's followers began to slip away. And with the force of long habit, many of the city's residents looked once again to the Red Keep for leadership. And so, as the shepherd's followers shrank, the court of King Tristane Truefire grew. But Tristane was no true king, his followers mere opportunists, and everywhere across the city, chaos reigned. Three kings reigned over the city, each on his own hill, yet for their unfortunate subjects there was no law, no justice, no protection. No man's home was safe, nor any maiden's virtue. As always with a war covering so much territory, so many characters, and such a variety of conflicts, we like to take stock of what's happened as we wrap things up. With Sir Criston Cole dead and the Blacks throwing the sea snake in the Black Cells, both sides lost their hands. Quite a few important commanders and notables died. Roddy the Ruin, Lord Ormond Hightower, and Sir Brynden Hightower, Lord Lefford, Lord Jason Lannister, Lord Adrian Tarbeck, Lord Vance, Garibald the Grey, Longleaf the Lion Slayer, Sir Rickard Thorne, and Sir Glendon Good of the Kingsguard, Lady Caswell, and countless others. The Strongs of Harrenhal and Footleys of Tumbleton suffered greatly, as did Bitterbridge and others, including King's Landing itself, which was taken and lost. The loss of productivity is impossible to quantify. This is a self-inflicted wound of unfathomable proportions, even without the overwhelming moral considerations. Among the Targaryens, Prince Joffrey and Prince Maelor and Princess Helena were killed. All the dragons in the dragon pit, as well as Cyrax, perished as well. Also lost was the respect of just about everyone. 
While there were brave deeds and displays of valor, this is a cynical war of power. There aren't many just causes championed or high-minded ideals expressed to rally others. There are lots of skilled individuals, but not a lot of good individuals. It really is kill or be killed and not much else. More than any installment so far, this one highlights the fact that this is a war of attrition. Quite a few of the names just mentioned were slain by other names just mentioned. In that sense, it's more like kill and be killed. Yet there were many big names who have yet to make their mark on the conflict, such as Lord Cregan Stark, Lord Boros Baratheon, and Lady Jane Arryn. The River Lords aren't finished and neither are those of the Reach, and the two betrayers have just gotten started. Aemond One-Eye remains on the loose, and the man he wants most is Prince Daemon. And while the war has claimed many, King Aegon and Queen Rhaenyra remain, and they are about to come face to face. As long as one of them remains, the war will continue, and for Westeros, things will continue to fall apart. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed part four of our deep dive into the Dance of the Dragons. And now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to Ashea and Yoke Boy, the producers of this episode, both video and audio formats. Kevin McLeod and Kai Engel for allowing us to use their music in our production. Michael Klarfeld from ClaireDocs.de. Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the history of Westeros music. And as always, George R. Martin for including history in his world. And finally, we'll close by giving thanks to our patrons. Consider being a supporter, and you could hear your name here, too. Radio Westeros Castle Steel patrons. AJ, Aegon VI, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Oakenfist, Arian, Arshia, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Christine, Maddie and Jessica, Clay, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadigan, Crimson Kate, Dag Blah Blah, Dan S, Dimitri B, Dennis, Eric, Esme, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Ingvild, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brendan Beefish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Ares, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarian the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Brash Candy, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemmy B, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Maria, Margaretha, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, and Matt L, Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Belinda, Maester Mary, Michael M, Mitchell, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Scott Greenseer, Scott, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Shari, Sheila, Soren, Spentrails, That Shiny Bastard, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, The Tattered Princess, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helminth the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Kuwarin Halfhand, Woodside for Life, and Yvonne. And History of Westeros patrons... First Lord, Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers. Lord Stephen Stark, Titles, Titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, find it here, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. 
Cabot the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks, and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods, and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister, the Blood Lion, Ruler of Castle Everor, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Damon. Jenny the Just, captain of the ghost ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has recently been sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of the Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. Sea Lord Sean Gallagher, the Titan Spinger, owner of nine Valyrian steel ears. The White Walkers, Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, first of the First Men, now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Wood Blinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword, Pale Frost. The Small Council, Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, Master of Coin, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Liam Mullen, Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor, Master of Karate, Friendship for Everyone, and Ships. The Lords and Ladies in their castles, Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest, wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglazed. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny, guardian ranger of the hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, dual wielder of Valyrian short swords Glorious Morning and Little Lightwise, sharpshooter of the Weirwood and Ironwood laminated longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood, first forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Weirwood. Listen for the silence. Casey Stark of House Acres. Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. Lady Mora of House Stark, archmistress of Apothecaries and Woodswitch. Her castle features weirwood doors with painted moons. Lena Snow, the Twilight Star, bastard daughter of Dane, wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia. Lady Amy Blackfire, analyzer of Eastern symbolism, lover of poles, and dismantler of the patriarchy. Jason Stark, second son of the North, wielder of the Valyrian steel sword, Bloodbath, lord of Castle Whitewood, the chill is real. Suck-ass gamer, master of soap and clay. King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Fate. The Queen's High Council, Rebea Star-Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are quartz crystal, wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, fire, and ink. The Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, Master of Whisperers. Lady Wolfbird, Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stones Harp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, Prime Rider of the Rising Hills, Master of Laws. The Kingsguard, Lord Commander Namian of House Darkland, the Night Slayer, Valyrian Sword, Onyx Abyss. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Gregor Snow, called Snow Bear, a Bastard of Winterfell. 
Vaughn of House Furster. Sigil is a male fist with extended forefinger and pinky on a light blue field. Visenya, let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark, gunslinger knight of the Winter Kings, back from a twenty-year ranging to the lands of always winter to protect my King Aziz. The Queen's Guard. Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Amber the Adamant, Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin. Norineko, Archmaester Vena, whose ring and rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding. The Beard Guard, Hand of the Beard, Lady Suzanne Sinestral. Lord Commander George the Golden, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown. Stay frosty. The History of Westeros Night's Watch. Lord Commander Richard the Ligerheart, wielder of Barry's Anklebreaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes. Motto, go blue. First builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the fire in the snow. First ranger, Liam, a.k.a. Sir Waiting on a Nickname. First steward, Sir Zack of House Wild, Lord Shredder of the Spiral, wielder of the Valyrian steel axe, Grail. We'll see you soon with new episodes of Radio Westeros and History of Westeros. Valar Reredus. Bye for now. <laughs>